Um, yesterday morning we had our men's breakfast and essentially yesterday we were thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple according to Jesus? And here are some of the things we looked at. There's a sheet and I think there's some leftovers at the back if you're uh, wanting to see what we looked at. But here's some of the things. It says a disciple is called to ultimate allegiance. You remember how the disciples left their nets and left their father and followed Jesus. Jesus became their ultimate allegiance. A disciple is called to unconditional obedience. Jesus says, you call me Lord, but you do not do what I say. If you're following me, then obey me. It says here, a disciple is called to suffer and serve. And not to feel any self-pity about it. Because a follower of Jesus is a servant. And no servant is greater than his master. And Jesus served us. So we serve. And that's just a sample of some of the things that we saw were involved in being a disciple of Jesus. And they're not easy reading, are they? Not easy to hear. And you might say, well, unconditional obedience, ultimate allegiance, suffering and serving, is it all worth it? And if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to, as Jerry said last week, be all in, I need to know that Jesus really is who he says he is. I want reassurance that I've got God right. I don't want to sacrifice all of this and then lose out in the end. And if you've been following Jesus for some time, I suspect there have been moments where you've had thoughts like these. Is it worth it? Have I got it right? What is God doing as things happen to me that I don't understand? Have you ever had thoughts like those? The Christian life is harder than I expected. It's not as glorious as I expected. It actually involves suffering. And I gave the men yesterday some questions to think about. Here are uh, some of the questions. Am I willing to obey whatever God says about this area of my life, no matter how I feel about it? Am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in my life, whether I understand it or not? Are there problems in my life that I think are too big for God to remove? So just imagine you're with Jesus walking along the road. Uh, he turns to you and he says, well, what does he say in Mark chapter 8, verse 31? Just have a look at it. He turns to you and he says, well, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You have just heard Jesus say that. You find the sheep from the men's breakfast. And it says, am I willing to thank God for whatever happens, whether I understand it or not? Well, it's tricky, isn't it? No wonder Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. It's pretty unsettling when your triumphant, conquering, Roman-smashing Messiah comes and he says, you know, I'm going to be humiliated and I'm going to die and it's not going to be an accident. I'm going to do it deliberately. It's really unsettling. Even more unsettling when he says, and if you follow me, you're going to be humiliated too and suffer and serve. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Do you ever have moments when you think, is this all worth it? Have I got this right? Is God going to come through or will I just lose out? You read the men's breakfast sheet again. Am I willing to obey whatever God says, no matter how I feel about it? 
What would motivate me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus? That is the question. When I have those moments of doubt or difficulty in the Christian life, and I say, is it worth it? What is God doing? What is it that's going to keep me going? What is it that's going to reassure me to keep suffering and serving? Well, this morning in Mark chapter 9, we find exactly what we need. Because what we have here is a loving display of Jesus' glory. God reassures his disciples by giving them a preview of the glory that Jesus has. To reassure us that he is worth it. To reassure us that the suffering and the service, the self-denial and the cross, it all has a purpose and a goal. And yes, there's suffering and there's going down now, but there's a curve and it's glory to come that's promised. And he can give it because he's glorious. And one day his glory will be seen by everyone when he comes to rule and judge the world. But here is a preview of that glory to come. And what the disciples see is described for us in verse 1 of chapter 9. When you read verse 1 of chapter 9, it's tempting to think that Jesus is talking about his final kingdom. His second coming. And it's really confusing. What does he mean that there are people there with them who will not die until they see the kingdom coming with power? Well, the hint of what Jesus is talking about is in verse 2. It says, after six days... And Mark wants us to see that what happens after six days is directly linked to that statement that Jesus makes. A direct connection between verse 1 and what happens next. Because Jesus didn't take all the disciples on the mountain, he took some of them. He says, some of you are going to see the kingdom coming with power. And Jesus is talking about his transfiguration. The kingdom is Christ. He is the king. Where he is, the kingdom is. And the glory of the kingdom is Christ. The power of the kingdom is Christ. You're going to see the kingdom. You're going to see my glory and my power and my majesty. That's what the disciples have a preview of. A loving reassurance that Jesus really is the king who can fulfill his promises. The one who can bring you through the curve of suffering and service. Out to the other side to glory and life with God that's what they get and we do that for other people all the time don't we we give them a little preview of what's to come so that they know it's worth it so someone you know is facing surgery and they're pretty scared about it but maybe you've been through it yourself and you say you know just think about how wonderful it will be when the the bones are fixed and the pain's gone or the child is facing the first day at school and they're a little bit worried. You give them a preview of what's going to happen. You say, you know, there's going to be loads of boys and girls there and you'll make lots of friends. You let them imagine what the future will be like. You're climbing a hill, it's tough going, and the person says, but hold on, just keep going. The view will be worth it. We do it all the time. The job interview, it'll be okay. Just think of the great job you'll have. We give people a preview of what's to come to get them through the rough times and God is so loving, he gives us this display of Jesus' glory to get us through the Christian life. It's the reassurance that's desperately needed. You know, the disciples, can you just imagine how unsettling it was to, to expect this conquering Messiah to come? And when he does come, you've devoted your life to following him. He says, I'm going to die. need reassurance don't we 
how does this display, this preview of glory, actually reassure me to keep going in the Christian life? Well, firstly, we have reassurance that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's really what I need to be convinced of, isn't it? I need to know that when Jesus tells me to take up my cross and deny myself and follow him, that he really is God and he really is God's Son. The King, the Messiah, who is able to rule the world, who is able to provide everything that I need to keep going in the Christian life as I deny myself and take up my cross. And ultimately the King who's going to come through in the end and give me the life, the eternal life that I need. The glory that I want to experience with him. I need the reassurance that he's the Son of God. And that's what I get here. So let's read it again from verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. A supernatural brightness. And then just jump down to verse 7. A cloud appeared and enveloped them. What have we got here? We've got a mountain, we've got supernatural brightness, and we've got a cloud. So does it sound familiar? How does it give me reassurance that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, we had that reading, didn't we, from Exodus? And we remember how God gathered his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he rescues them and he brings them to this mountain. And they go up the mountain and they see God's glory. The elders of Israel go up and they meet God. And then Moses goes up and he meets God. It says they beheld God. The presence of God represented by this cloud on the mountain and his glory is displayed. And the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9 is clearly a parallel. It's clearly a message saying, look, this man standing before you is the Son of God. He's the presence of God in your midst. If you want to see God and experience his glory, here he is. It's Jesus. And just as we read about Moses going up the mountain and seeing God's glory, his face shining because of the reflection of God's glory, so here we see Jesus shining. But it's with his own glory. Moses' face, it shone because he's just sort of reflecting what he's experienced. But Mark tells us that this dazzling glory comes out of Jesus. It's in him. His clothes became dazzling white, a brilliance that no human ability could produce. No one in the world could do this. Reassurance that this is divine glory. Jesus is revealed to be the very glory of God. It's not glory that's given to him, like Moses kind of passed on glory. But it's his own, it's in him, and it comes bursting out for a moment as the veil is pulled back and we see him for who he is. Hidden under human flesh, hidden under the figure of the weak, homeless man, but it's in him. And just for a moment, we have this reassurance. I wonder if you remember the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. What happens to Paul on that road? He says, about noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed about me. In fact, he says, the guys who were with me led me me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Paul met Jesus and he saw his glory. He was blinded by it. That's what we need, isn't it? 
That's how we begin the Christian life, isn't it? We see Jesus in the pages of the Bible and we see his glory and suddenly it comes to life and we're overwhelmed by him. And you think, this guy, he loves me so much. He's so glorious. He's the one who made me and he's the one who saved me. I can't help but follow him. And that's what gets you going. But it's also what keeps you going in the Christian life. Constantly going back again and again and beholding his glory to see who he truly is. It's whenever we lose sight of him and his glory that the trouble starts. You're sure that he's God. You're sure that he can do what he has promised. You can entrust yourself to him. He's not going to let you down. Reassurance that he's the son of God. But secondly, we have reassurance here that Jesus is the way to God. So you remember back in Exodus, God's glory was never experienced directly. Never directly. Moses himself was a mediator, a kind of go-between, representing God to the people and representing the people to God. They all stayed at the foot of the mountain. They stayed outside the tent or the temple. It was never direct. They needed a mediator. And even Moses, who longed to see the glory of God, couldn't see it. The Lord refused. He said, you know, sinful human beings cannot see my perfect glory and survive it. But here the disciples see the glory of God face to face. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Sinful human beings who cannot be in God's glory see God's glory face to face for the first time. In fact, it's so much for them that Peter in verse 5 says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, but let us put up three shelters. He didn't know what to say. He was so frightened. Well, you can kind of sympathize with Peter, can't you? Peter sees the glory of God and he thinks, we need tents, don't we? We need tents or tabernacles. We need a veil. We need something to put God behind, keep him at a distance, because this is quite scary. He's exposing me, and I'm seeing Jesus for who he is, and I'm seeing myself for who I am. John's Gospel says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus is the way that we experience God's glory. He's the way that we experience God as our Father. He's the way that we experience God directly for the first time. Direct access to the glory of God. Well, most of us, most people in the world know that there is a God behind the universe. And most people know deep down that there's a sort of gap between us and God. And the evidence of that is you go around the world and you find these things called temples and churches and cathedrals and mosques and priests and sacrifices and religious rituals. Because deep down we all have a sense that there's this gap between me and God that keeps me away from him. But here we learn that not only is Jesus the God on the other side of the gap, but actually he's the bridge across the gap. He's the one who gets us direct access to the glory of God. He's not only the God we need, but he's the mediator we need. He's the way to come into the presence of the Holy One into the glory of God. You know, Jesus says, take up my cross, deny myself, suffer, serve, and follow him. 
but he can get me into the very presence of God. One day he'll bring me face to face with the glory of God. So a little bit of service now doesn't seem that bad. Here is loving reassurance, a loving preview of Jesus' glory. And a clear display and a voice from heaven which says, this is my son whom I love. This is my last point. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When you see who Jesus is, when you see that he's the son of God, he's the the way to God, who else are you going to listen to? It makes perfect sense. Moses and Elijah, great ways to hear about God. Great ways that God revealed himself through Moses and Elijah. But Jesus is the greatest way to get to know God. This is my son. This is the way. Listen to him. Even when he says things that are difficult to hear. Things that I don't fully understand. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. When he says, I'm going to be humiliated and I'm going to die on a cross and you're going to think it's all over, listen to him. This is my son whom I love. The disciples struggled with this, didn't they? But we all struggle with it. I struggle with this and you struggle with it too. But the disciples struggled with it particularly because they'd just seen Elijah on the mountain. And if you were one of the disciples, you'd be thinking of a prophecy in Malachi. And the prophecy in Malachi said that Elijah's going to come, or a figure like Elijah's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to restore the kingdom. It's going to be glorious. And people are going to worship God the way they should. And all the sin in the world is going to be gone. So you're one of the disciples. You've seen Elijah back again. Uh, What are you thinking? Well, what's Jesus talking about when he says he's going to suffer on a cross and die? Malachi said when Elijah comes, the kingdom's going to be restored. It's going to be glorious. What is Jesus talking about? How does it fit with what Jesus is talking? It's a fair question there in verse 12. Jesus says, yes, Elijah will come to restore all things. But then he says, verse 13, but... He says, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, you and I knew, because we had a sneak preview that the disciples didn't have, previous chapters in Mark's Gospel have shown us that the Elijah figure was John the Baptist. And he did come to restore the kingdom. He baptized people for repentance of sins. But they did to him everything they wished. And ultimately, they put him to death. Jesus says, the Elijah figure, John, he's come. The resistance to him was enormous. He has suffered and he has been killed. So why then shouldn't I, the Messiah, also suffer and die? In fact, the opposition to Jesus and his death on the cross is not a surprise to God or a setback in his plan. An opposition, suffering, cross-carrying, It shouldn't surprise anyone who is associated with Jesus. What happened to John the Baptist? The suffering first and then the glory was part of God's plan. Malachi talked about it. What happened to Jesus? The suffering first and then the glory was part of God's plan. All the prophets talked about it. And again and again the disciples found themselves facing situations that looked like 
their Lord and their cause was utterly defeated. Hard for the disciples in those moments to imagine that the poor, weak, wandering teacher is the one who's going to return with glory. Very hard. When he's captured and killed, impossible to imagine his future greatness. But here is a loving preview of that greatness and that glory. Of the incredible power and majesty underneath all the suffering and the ordinariness of Jesus. And all the suffering and the ordinariness of the Christian life. We need this as much as the disciples. When it feels like the gospel and the Lord doesn't seem to be succeeding. Does it ever feel like that? When prayers are not being answered. When people are not coming to Jesus the way we'd like. When I myself am not improving in the Christian life and I feel I'm struggling with the same old sins. We get a reassuring look under the ordinariness of the Christian life. The suffering and the service and the taking up the cross and the self-denial. And we get a preview, a loving preview of the glory to come. And I find it interesting finally that Peter who was on that mountain with Jesus being reassured of that future glory. Peter later wrote a letter to the churches who were suffering to reassure them in the midst of that suffering. And how does Peter reassure them? He says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter wrote those words because he'd experienced it. He'd had a preview of the glory of Jesus. And the glory that one day will be revealed. That's the assurance that you and I need this week to keep going. And is that your assurance? Are you totally convinced of who Jesus is? And have you seen his glory? When you open up the pages of the Bible, does he leap off them at you? When you see how loving and merciful he is. When you see his promises when he says, go out into the world and tell them of me and I'll be with you. And I'll provide everything you need. Do you think, yes, God said, this is my son, whom I love. I will listen to him. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, the Christian life often is difficult. Many of us here in this church face different trials and different things in each of our lives. But please would you give us a fresh sight of Jesus that would capture our hearts and fill us with joy and fill us with hope for the future and assurance of that glory to come. And may we have hearts that long to have direct access to you, to see your glory and enjoy it. The Father who we were made to be in relationship with. We need you to do that for us, to change our hearts. And I pray that you would do that for us this week. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our final hymn reminds us of the promises that Jesus makes to everyone who follows him uh, as we take up our cross and look forward to glory. So let's stand and sing, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord.